You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Welcome again. This is part two of my conversation with Dick Holm, the author of The Craft We Chose, about his life in the CIA. But let me for a moment take you back. Uh, you discussed several fascinating cases in the course of your book, one of which certainly was an extraordinary counterintelligence case. And this occurred while you were the chief of station in Brussels in the mid-80s, mm -hmm. I think 85 through 88. And I wonder if you could just give uh, our, our, our viewers a sense of what that case was because I think in, in sort of encapsulated form it gives a, a, a window into the kind of thing we can get involved in when we're overseas and involved sure. in operations. The, the mission in, uh, in Belgium at the time uh, was in large part counterintelligence uh, because we knew that the Soviets, as well as the Chinese, as well as many of their minions, were targeting the common market, known at that time, and uh, NATO. So we were attuned to what, what they were up to. Uh, I walked into my office one day, and there was a, a package, and in it were photographs of two men. Um, it came from another station in Europe that had done an excellent job of counter-surveillance of a Russian um, GRU general who popped into town periodically. And when he came into town, we, we knew, of course, that he was there for some reason, so why was he there? GRU being the Soviet military, military intelligence. intelligence. Yeah. Exactly. So um, in, in the message that came with it was an explanation that this was GR, GRU general something and a Belgian Air Force colonel. And so, of course, I mean, you say, why, what's he doing there and what's going on? A little more investigation showed uh, by that other station is that, that they were having a meeting and that they had several contacts while both were in uh, that city. So, of course, we're faced with the dilemma of what to do with this. Um, and I had contacts, headquarters uh, sent me a couple of messages. I sent some back. We were discussing what to do. And ultimately, we concluded that um, my station didn't have the capability uh, to, to monitor a Belgian in his offices, either Belgian Air Force officers or NATO officers. 
So we had to contact one of the liaison services that I was working with to try to determine how best to proceed. The internal service, we had worries about them having been penetrated already by the, by the Soviets, ruled them out, so it became the, the military intelligence service of Belgium. And I went, talked to the general who was in charge, explained the whole thing, showed him the photographs. Are you sure, Dick? I mean, just because this is, I mean, this would be very sensitive politically if something happens. And are you sure? I said, I'm telling you that, you know, there's no reason other than an agent case officer meeting that these two guys are together. He's reluctant, but he said, okay, we got to do this. So the Belgians put this fellow under surveillance. And early on, um, he seemed sensitive to surveillance. And we were, what's going on? So, you know, this, this is, it's going to be either good or bad. It turned out that he was having an affair with, an, with a colleague's wife. And he thought it was the, his former fellow Belgian officer who was following him. So that was ruled out, and he, he, he got over that. He went on. But uh, long story short, they, they continued the surveillance. Heavy resources are required. They put a, a, a camera over his desk in his office. They um, saw him photographing documents that he should have no access to, or why was he doing it? Um, and then um, they got enough in, to get a, a court approval, a judge approval, to um, search his house. He was a divorced guy living alone, so that wasn't much problem. They went into his house, discovered what you can call, in general, spy gear, uh, communications things, a small camera, etc. So they really sort of had him nailed. And then the next question was catching him in the act. And in their surveillance, the surveillance teams, who have to be really, as you know, I mean, they have to be very observant, very alert, very... And one of them noticed that, you know, on most days he had a, um, a sort of a teddy bear in, in his back seat. And it sat in the back seat, sat in the back seat, but on every now and then he put it up on the shelf behind the back seat so you could see it through the window. And so they put two and two together, and that was a signal that he was going to make a drop that night to his Soviet case officer. And uh, exactly that happened. The next time he put it up there, uh, they were on him a whole time. Then they, then they, they saw him make a dead drop, and they picked up the Soviet who went to pick it up. And long story short, um, I was following this very closely, of course, because we were worried about our our information in NATO being compromised to the Soviets. Um, and this guy made periodic tri uh, trips to the United States where he would attend conferences with our Air Force people. And, of course, our Air Force people, thinking he's an ally, they're telling him a lot. So I, I at, the, at the end of this thing, I, I went to General von Kalster, the Belgian head of the service, and said, we really have to do something because he's now scheduled to go to Wright Air Force Base uh, next week. Uh, and this is a problem. You know, we, we, how can we let this keep, wound keep bleeding, as it were? Well, uh, he brought in his chief CI, and the chief CI said, Dick, I'm having a conversation with the colonel tomorrow, and it, it's going to be all over. So they had, they had collected enough information that when they called him in to interrogate him, he broke immediately because you know, it was clear. 
the, the, the post-mortem is that he only got 10 years in the slammer for, for what he had been doing, which I thought was insufficient. So. But it, it illustrated clearly the, the counterintelligence counter, counter concerns and, and, and why we have those concerns and what can happen. And uh, I was delighted with how the Belgian service actually handled this. We were monitoring it very closely, step by step with them. But as I say, they had the capabilities, the, the people on the ground, the language speakers, the surveillance teams, you know, to, to get it all done. And I think it's, it's quite interesting as a counterintelligence case, but the overwhelming amount of your time as a CIA officer overseas is looking for, uh, for sources for us, for clandestine That's sources exactly to provide right. us yeah. with information yeah. about what is going on. Yep. And so much of your time must have been consumed in, perhaps we could give our, 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 our viewers just a sense of that, of what, as it were, the life of a case officer. Sure, and, as, and as, as you know, I mean, each station has a sort of a, we all do CI, CA, and, and collection. Um, but in some stations, there's more or less of one of those segments. In, in Hong Kong, you know, a big part of the effort was collection. So we were running agents into the, into the mainland to try to collect intelligence. With, and at the same time, you're always concerned about counterintelligence and counter secure, you know, security issues for your operation. You, it's interesting, you touched there on, on collecting intelligence, counterintelligence, and you mentioned CA, which is covert action. Yeah. I wonder if you could just touch on that a bit. And you'll find in the book, um, I had some criticism of some of the things that we, we did um, in, a, in a covert action sense. On the other hand, my tour in Laos, I was sent there because President Kennedy directed us to go there and organize you know, um, an opposition force to the North Vietnamese who were using Laos to infiltrate the South. And we were trying to uh, organize a group. They called it the Secret War. And in, in Laos, believe me, it was anything but secret. I mean, it was a lot. But it was a, it was a, it was a covert action operation. And the, the issue being that we, would, we, we could have plausible denial that it was us doing it, us being the U.S., but of course, as that as that operation grew, uh, and I think you, none other than Dick Helms would tell you that we were very successful in what we did in Laos. In the end, it it all went for naught. But but I mean, our effort with minimal resources, we organized a group that was very effective in harassing and and complicating the life of the North Vietnamese troops who were headed south. So. You know, it's interesting this, this, that the agency so often is asked to do things uh, because uh, we, can, we can virtually turn on a dime, uh, because we're, we are used to working in overseas countries. Uh, in many cases, we have the language or the area knowledge. And yet, it, it's sometimes not long before that covert action uh, becomes public. Uh, yeah. Perhaps because the administration itself has leaked it, because it's, they're very proud of what they're doing. An obvious example would be our support to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, when we helped the Mujahideen to, as it were, throw the Soviets out, which in effect became their Vietnam. Yeah. And yeah. that it's it's very true, and and there's a there's always a political aspect to these things, and. You, what you'll see as you look back is that if, if the operation was a success, uh, it becomes well-known. When it fails, a la the Bay of Pigs, for example, then uh, who's left 
taking the rap, it's the clandestine service. Notwithstanding the fact that a president ordered us and approved what we did, but, but you know, the, the effect is that it's the clandestine service that takes the, takes the repercussions of it. Well, I know when you and I were talking earlier before we uh, did this uh, uh, videotape conversation, you had some strong thoughts about uh, the agency and sort of the political context in which it works. And I wonder if you would expand on that a bit. Sure. I, I, I tried to outline and, and mention more or less um, the political issues decade by decade throughout my career. Uh, in the 60s, of course, it was Vietnam. Um, one of our directors, McCone, actually left because he said, look, we're sending you intelligence saying this isn't a very smart war, especially the way we're fighting it. You're not reading it. You're not paying any attention to it. So I'm going back to California. I quit. He just resigned. And it was the politics of the thing and the debate within Washington that, that spurred his decision. In the 70s, of course, we had Watergate, which, which lapped onto us heavily. It got Dick Helms an assignment in Tehran. He got sent to Siberia because he wouldn't agree to what the White House wanted. And that spurred commissions and the Pike Committee and the Church Committee and a whole whole series of issues that I mean I can in my in my position at the time I was in the middle level working not on the seventh floor and it didn't affect me too much but I know that on the seventh floor there was a lot of lot of controversy a lot of issues it it prompted us to come under the the sway of the uh, oversight committees that's when the House Committee and the Senate Committee were formed and we had to start reporting you know, on a regular basis uh, to them. In the 80s, we had the Iran-Contra. Uh, again, conflict between the Congress wanting this on one hand, the president wanting that on the other hand, and in the middle is the clandestine service. We have the capability to do what the president wanted done. We did it, and it turned out very badly. We, in fact, we had a, a number, I think seven or eight of our officers were indicted later to be pardoned by George H.W. Uh, but, but, I mean, that was, a, again, a conflict, a political conflict that caused us uh, you know, a, a grief because we don't have the capability to sway things one way or the other. We have to live with, with the results. In the 90s, we were living with what they'd like to call the peace dividend. And so our resources were severely cut. And, and the president in the 90s, Clinton, just he really paid very little attention to us. I mean, this, clandestine service is a tool for any president. It can be used well, it can be used badly, or it can be used not at all, which was apparently Clinton's option. And we got cut all during the 90s, so here comes 2001, and we were essentially a wounded service. We, we, a lot of our capabilities had, had dwindled, you know, from, from paramilitary to language to a whole series of things. And we had to then work through, and, and now we've been building again for another decade. And, and now, now they're talking about, okay, we've got to have cuts. And I mean, I understand we need cuts for sure in, in government spending, but we, we seem to make the wrong choice more often than not. Well, you know, one of the comments that, that's often been made is that intelligence, as it were, in the larger sense, but specifically the service, has no natural constituency political constituency, right. the American people at large, but no niche con constituency. And I think one of the effects of that is to place an enormous amount of 
influence on whoever is the director. And I think that, that the director really sets the tone for our agency in ways that are really quite extraordinary. And I know you make some comments in the, on, in the book about some of the directors in the agency. Yes. Do you recall some of the highlights from, from your comments? Well, I mean, I informally ranked them. I worked for 13 of them. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard to, uh, I don't want to get too personal with some of these things, but uh, the effects that they had on the work I was doing, I think, was largely yes. um, an issue. I think uh, Admiral Turner, um, in my view, he was uh, a little naive in terms of how he was approaching things. And, and he, you know, he made conditions for us a lot harder. Um, John Deutsch, um, I'll never forget in, in uh, I think about sometime in 95, he decided we, we could only recruit nice guys. We, we can't recruit bad people or people with a bad human rights record. Um, so we were left with, uh, we, we, can, we can recruit Boy Scouts and choir boys, but we can't recruit guys on the fringes of gun running or drugs or terrorism. You know, uh, I mean, these are not nice people, but they're the people who know what's going on that we have to deal with in some cases in order to collect the intelligence. Um, it's, and experience makes a big difference, but I mean, I, I, I will recall again that John McCone was named by President Kennedy even though, or maybe because, he was a Republican, not a Democrat, and Kennedy's position was, I don't want this to be a political appointment. And of course, we would applaud that decision for sure. But as the years have gone by, time after time, it became a political. One president would be elected, he'd say, okay, out of here, I want my guy in that job. Um, and that's, that, that happened, it's happened many, many times. I think George Tenet stayed on with George, with George W. Um, that, was, that was a surprise. I mean, people thought that might not happen, but uh, I, I agree with you a lot. Uh, that, that our, our director can have a, an enormous impact. I was, frankly, um, concerned when Leon Panetta was named. I thought, this is a politician. You know, what does he know about intelligence? What good could he do? Huh? But in fact, uh, because he knows Washington so well, um, I thought he did a pretty good job as our director. I mean, he, he fought battles for us, and he won those battles for us. So uh, and there are a lot of factors involved, but. Uh, the influence of the director and his ability to deal with the White House and the Congress you know, are paramount, are very important for us. Well, there was another, uh, if I could, just uh, sort of go back to your field, your career in the field, but also where there is a linkage to Washington. There was a, a, a compromise, uh, sometimes called a flap in intelligence parlance, or, or even a failure by some people, the media perhaps, in Paris when you were the chief of station. Mm -hmm. And I think you had very strong feelings about that, uh, about how it was handled, uh, both in the field and when you got back to Washington. And that mm -hmm. comes out quite strongly in the book. I wonder if you would comment on that. What it was As a and the aftermath. Um, I, I was responsible, of course, for the operational security of our of our activities. Um, in, I mean, in effect, what actually happened was that one of our officers allowed herself to be compromised. That is to say that the French internal service, the DST, 
became aware of the fact that she was one of our officers. It didn't take much from there for them to surveil her and to determine who her agents were. Um, we, of course, unaware of this, you know, went our merry way and we're, we're running these agents. Um, as, it, as it happened, um, the, the one that was ultimately portrayed was a very low-level agent. They were apparently monitoring his activities, but didn't much care because he didn't know very much. And we were working closely with them on a whole range of dishes, and there was a lot of mutual benefit coming from it. So why, why muddy the water with that little guy? But it, the Minister of Interior, you know, a long-time French politician, um, was involved in activities in an in a electoral campaign. And he was caught wiretapping the opponents of the guy he was backing. Very bad. So there was a lot of pressure and a lot of public outcry against him in an effort to push it away from himself, he brought this case to light. He called in our ambassador. He read her the riot act. He showed her some photographs of people who had met with this agent. Um, and it just it developed into an enormous And storm. the ambassador was? Pamela Harriman. Um, and she was startled, shocked. This was a lot of rain on her parade. She didn't like this at all. She came directly back to the embassy and said, Dick, what's going on here? And it took us about an hour to figure out the whole thing and what had happened. But then, to compound the problem, he turned over the dossier to the French press, the French media. And that, of course, was picked up all over the world. And it was a love triangle this and a love triangle that. I remember I said the, the press can be very inaccurate. They didn't know what the heck was happening, but they made a big story of it. And it was picked up over here, of course. Um, so suddenly, you know, Congress, which had been briefed, you know, there was this thing that happened and it was bad. And it wasn't the first, nor would it be the last time we had a, an operation compromised. I mean, it's, we're not perfect. That's the bottom line. But then Congress said, oh, we better have an IG investigation. IG, the inspector, inspector general. general. Yeah. The last thing you need. It was an operational compromise, so it's up to the service, the clandestine service, to run a counterintelligence investigation to run a, you know, lessons learned. We got what happened and why and what's going we do about it. But the inspector general sent over, I mean, I characterize them as a, you know, a group of coal miners investigating uh, uh, the, the, the crash of an airplane or uh, the grounding of an aircraft carrier. I mean, they, they, they had never been overseas. They didn't know what it was all about. They didn't know what questions to ask. If they hit upon a good one, they didn't know what, how to interpret the answer. Uh, it was just a terrible... And it was compounded by the fact that Director Woolsey had just resigned because of the Aldrich Ames. So there was a, a negative atmosphere and, a, and the, the clandestine service was under a lot of criticism. And he resigned. We didn't have a director. There was an acting director uh, in that period, December 94 to May of 95, um, this period in there. Um, there was another case that came to light uh, in Latin America where a, a station had been involved with a... It, it was a combination. It was what we could call the perfect storm. Everything <laughs> negative all at once. And then the inspector general sends out this team. And so... Uh, and I, I think um, the, the elements at headquarters that had approved every step we took 
suddenly sort of melted back into the background and the, and the key officers were not, not to be seen. And, uh, and the upshot of it all was it a very, very frustrating uh, situation for me. Um, I came back to headquarters after about six months and, and waited for the IG to do his report. And then they did a report. It was, we rebutted it with an even longer report. It was laced with errors and distortions and inaccuracies. Because uh, they didn't understand what, what had really happened. I, then I, I, in that spring, I got a letter from the director uh, saying, this is a letter in lieu of a letter of reprimand because you've retired by now. And uh, so this is to chastise you because you didn't manage your station effectively. Um, I, I had the temerity, I guess, you know, to, I sent the letter back to him and said, this letter and what you're saying is based on a totally flawed, so I don't accept it. Now, I don't know if how often that happens, but I was just so frustrated. And I expected I would never hear again from, from the agency. Uh, this was in the spring of 1995. In August, I got a phone call, and they said, we'd like to, we'd like to present you with a Distinguished Intelligence Medal. <laughs> would you come into headquarters? <laughs> And I interpreted that as a, a clear confirmation of the fact that they, they realized it had been a totally politicized uh, effort from start to finish. But, I mean, it's, it was a lousy way to finish my career, I can tell, I can tell you that. It, it is striking in, in your book because you go from the extraordinary support that the agency lent you when you were involved in the, in the plane crash uh, in Africa and, and that support extended up to the director personally, yeah. supporting you and visiting you to this, uh, to this rather sour note at the end, uh, when you didn't get the support from the people that I think you would have expected to definitely, have step forward. Definitely accepted. But I mean, yeah. it, what it points out, I mean, that's, you know, I, I don't have any regrets for what I did or the service and the people. I, but, you know, it, it's, there are individuals, and if you put, if the chemistry works out at the time, the, the director of uh, um, the DDO uh, was, in fact, a DI officer, completely misplaced. You know, and I, I tried to talk to him. He didn't understand either what was going on. So, I mean, it was just a combination of factors that the key individual here and there, and the total was disaster. It was just a disaster. I mean, I had a complete support from all of my colleagues and the people I had worked with, but, but the, the inspector general, the pe person he named to, to do the operation, the, the DDO at the time, uh, failed. You know, hearing you tell both these stories, um, I'm a young person. I'm a young man, a young woman, and I'm, I'm thinking of perhaps trying to get into the CIA because I've heard that it does good things and that it plays an important role for our country. What would you tell me? I would say, as they say now, go for it. I mean, I, don't, I can't, you know, apart from one airplane crash, I, I enjoyed every day of my career for 35 years. Some days more than others, of course. I mean, there were frustrations and there were, but I mean, I always felt involved in something very important, something that was contributing to our national security in a small way or a big way, depending upon which one. But I mean, I thought it was a, you, you couldn't find a career that would be as rewarding as that uh, in my own mind, I, I think. You know, it, now. You have to be someone who would be interested in spending portions of their life living abroad. You have to be someone who's interested in learning languages and in experiencing different cultures. I mean, all those things are a part of it, but, but they're all 
challenging and exciting. I mean, you, you know, you spent three years here, and then boom, all of a sudden you're going to go and you spent three years over there, um, and you have to retune, regroup, remotivate yourself. Every tour, I mean, I would I would always try to read as much as I could about where I was headed, you know, and what the culture is and what the people, and and try to learn as much as I could about the language. So, no, I, and I would tell you that the agency gets thousands of resumes a year. I mean, many, many thousands of resumes a year from really outstanding people who want to want to join up. And I think that's great. You know, I'm, and I'm, I'm confident that the generation that followed me, followed us, um, is going to be every bit as good. They face difficult challenges, but um, we can handle it. Do you think this generation will stay the course? And I ask you that because the message so often to this generation is you're not going to have one career like you and I did. Mm, yeah. You're going to have six or seven. In other words, my concern would be, will they come into the agency because it's exciting, because it's good on the resume, stay for a couple, three years, and then go off to Bank of America or, or something uh, overseas? In other words, will we get the sort of people that we got who, because it was the Cold War and we, we felt we were engaged in the Cold War and it was important, yeah. we stayed. Do you see that same uh, quality in the people that you've talked yeah. to who are coming into the agency? I, I think I do. Um, I, I can tell you, uh, but, but it, it's historic, but it was, it was notable. When I was the head of CMS, which was a, a difficult position, rarely, rarely did a week go by when I didn't have two or three people from other parts of the agency trying to transfer into the clandestine service. Almost never was anybody wanting to transfer out of the clandestine service. I mean, this is, within the agency, this is where the action is. I think you, it's undeniable. Now, uh, the motivation was, as you say, the Cold War. And in today's world, the people I have seen, the people I've talked to, seem clearly willing and ready to spend a career at it. Um, one advantage you have is that within the agency there are a whole range of different kinds of jobs you can do that all keep you involved in, in the intelligence community. But uh, where that's going to go down the road, I don't know. Um, it's, time is going to tell. A lot will depend, for, as you say, on, on the kinds of directors we have, the leadership that they get, the contribution that we're making. I mean, something, something like the Bin Laden raid um, is a big boost to morale because it's a wonderful success. It shows how you know, our work, meticulous work, day by day by day by day, can pay off. And that was an enormous intelligence success. You bet. Both the analytical part of it, which extended over a period of years, and the actual action in taking bin Laden down. We've been talking to Dick Holm, author of The Craft We Chose, about his some 35-year career in the Central Intelligence Agency. Dick, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thanks. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.